0: Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of To Be Determined with Dan and Bill. Today we've got a double feature for you, a short story by Terry Bisson from the early 90s called They're Made Out of Meat, and a short story from 1950 by Grandmaster Damon Knight called To Serve Man.
1: I'm just happy we are done talking about Harlan Ellison.
0: Yes, we move on from horror to, well, comedy and something like comedy. Much lighter fare.
1: Much lighter fare. Thank goodness. Thank goodness.
0: Neither one of these stories is very long. Neither one of these stories is very complex. We've only got a couple of characters in each one of them. Uh, but you get a lot of mileage out of them. They're, they, Every word brings you something that, that you can take away from it. So true. So let's start off with They're Made of Meat. Set us up, Dan.
1: So, story title is They're Made Out of Meat. It was written by Terry Bisson published on or around 1990 or 1991 in Omni Magazine, depending on what source you're looking at. And I think this is just an absolutely fabulous piece of writing as it pertains to humor in science fiction.
0: I agree with you there. It's, it, it's short but lively, and it, it doesn't fail ever.
1: Yeah, you, this story is maybe two or three pages long at the most. It, it consists of essentially two characters dialoguing with each other there's no background there's no storyline there's just these two beings we don't know who they are what they do where they are what the time frame is it's all completely left to the reader to imagine the the one thing we do know is that they are apparently looking for uh, signs of intelligent and sentient life in the universe That seems to be their job, and they have run across humans and are deciding what they're supposed to do now that they've met
0: us. (laughs) Good setup. I want to go back and count, I probably should have, how many times the word meat appears in the story. Because (laughs) it is part of the running joke. Or, I suppose, if you're vegetarian, the running gag.
1: Right. I mean, even the very first line, which is also the title of the story, says... They're made out of meat. And that's the first line that the first researcher or whatever he is says to the other researcher. And they start going down this path of, of meat. What, what are you talking about? Well, then they're talking about, of course, they're talking about humans, us, and saying, yeah, they're, they're all made out of meat. And this is just, they're incredulous. They can't believe this. They're like, well, I, I, I don't get it. This is just so far out of their realm of experience. That they they don't know how to wrap their hand, wrap their their brains around it or whatever they have for brains. And so they go down this path of, all right, well, what are they doing? Yeah, they it, it talks, this meets talking, it's thinking, it's it sings, and they're just every time something comes up, they're just shaking their heads going, This is just not possible. And then they start going through a little rationalization, like, oh, well, maybe they're not real meat. Maybe they're just only meat sometimes, like, you know, when they have an intelligent phase where they're not meat. Or maybe there's some other explanation for how they have intelligence. Just trying anything, but, but actually accept the explanation that humans are indeed made completely out of meat. So then there's a few other parts of that where... For example, he's like, are you sure? And they say, well, yeah, we, we picked a few of them up. We, we probed them all the way through, top to bottom. Yep, just meat. And the guy's like, what about a brain? Surely the brain's not meat. No, 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 brain's made out of meat, too. So just it keeps going on and on in this vein. And finally, they get to the point where they're, they're trying to decide what to do. They're like, we, we don't know what to do with this. We can't imagine that meat has anything intelligent to say. It's just meat after all. And and how we communicate is just laughable. It's like we're how do they how do they talk? They flap their meat things at each other. <laughs> they
0: slap. They sing by forcing air through their meat.
1: It's just
0: hilarious how they
1: talk about humans. And so he's like he's like singing meat. This is altogether too much. What do you advise? And the guy's like, well, officially or unofficially. And they basically say like like most good. Yeah, and this is one of the great human qualities about this story is since they've decided that they have no idea what to do, they can't figure out how this can even possibly exist, they'll probably be a laughingstock of the whole galaxy if they bring back this news about meat, they decide to sweep the whole thing under the rug and forget we ever existed.
0: My favorite line leading up to that is, so the, the, the first guy, the first, the first alien, the first being is trying to convince the, the second one that yes, he's talking about meat. And the second one says thinking meat, you're asking me to believe in thinking meat, yes, thinking meat, conscious meat, loving meat, dreaming meat. The meat is the whole deal. Are you beginning to get the picture or do I have to start all over? He's just so incredulous. And, and like the, all of the, I, I can imagine this as such a fast banter back and forth between the two of them.
1: Right. I mean, you can, I don't think we mentioned it, but this, this story has actually been, you know, made into a radio play and has been made into a few video productions that are out there online. You can look at, it's not necessarily true to the actual dialogue of the, of the story. Although there are, they're both pretty good, but I, I still much prefer this version in, in the written form.
0: Yeah. The writing, as is the case with so many of the things that we, that we talk about, it's straightforward, it's uncomplicated, and yet it has a style to it that is distinctive, that carries that comedic edge throughout the entire thing. And it is so so easy as a reader to imagine the incredulous tone as, as they're going through things. And then, of course, the conspiratorial shift. Yeah,
1: just, we just have to look at it like we like humans, right? Because we do this stuff all the time and we see it done all the time where where people get new information, new ideas, and they're just like, no way, that, that can't possibly be correct. We'll just ignore that. I mean, I, I can see the author being at some kind of convention where people are going on about, you know, humans and how special and great we are and how, you know, uh, carbon-based life forms are the only way intelligence can exist, and he's like walking off, going, "You guys just don't get it." I'm going to write a story where it's the exact opposite, and see what happens.
0: I'm going to prove you wrong.
1: Yeah, I actually ran across a term called carbon chauvinism, which apparently is the the belief that only carbon-based life forms can can be intelligent or develop you know biological intelligence. Never heard of that one before.
0: Well, and I love the... Well, it's not even the implication. It's the outright statement that these alien intelligences come along, hang out on our planet long enough to observe several generations of human beings in action. They interact. They probe, as he says, and...
1: Always got to have a probe.
0: That's right. Back to the probe again. We haven't had one in a couple episodes. Well, and the conclusion that they come to is that there is nothing... Of merit or interest on Earth. And so they're gonna pretend that they never met us, keep moving on through the universe, and they are convinced that because we are so planet bound and pathetic that there is basically no way that anyone will ever discover that we exist if they say that we were that we don't, and they mark our galaxy or our corner of the universe. As unworthy of further exploration.
1: (laughs) Unoccupied. (laughs) Nothing to see here. Move along. Yeah, they're like, oh, they're only stuck on one planet. You can only travel to other planets in special meat
0: containers. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
1: And we can't go faster than the speed of light, so it's really unlikely that we're ever going to meet anybody else. So they can just pretend we don't exist and walk away. And then as they walk away, they're talking about their their next little place they're going to go, some like a hydrogen intelligence or something like that.
0: Right. In a class nine star in G445 zone.
1: Who apparently have uh, been off the grid for a while and are now you know, reaching back out to the universe to be social. And the, the one researcher is like, yeah, they always come around. And the other one replies with, man, why not? Imagine how unbearably, how unutterably cold the universe would be if one were all alone. Which is exactly what you know they're consigning humanity to, or or meat meatanity,
0: and that's that actually explains. There's the line earlier that when I read it the first time again, I I didn't know what they meant. Where they say, yeah, we, we could just leave it behind and pretend they don't exist. In the in the second alien responds, oh, that's cruel, and there's the explanation that yep. it's you know consigning them to an existence with themselves.
1: And the even funnier thing is. This is all completely plausible. (laughs) I mean, if you think about it, yeah, it it explains all the facts and the evidence. We have not seen or contacted any alien life, hasn't contacted us as far as we know, but here's why. They just don't like us.
0: The line that I was thinking of, the, the first one or the second one responds, cruel, but you said it yourself, who wants to meet meat? And the ones who've been on board your vessels or our vessels, the ones you probed, you're sure that they won't remember? And of course, yeah, the other response is they'll be considered crackpots if they do. We went into their heads and smoothed out their meat so that we're just a dream to them. Yes.
1: A dream to meet as they put it, which as far as we can tell is means that, you know, humans of course dream about aliens or or we we conceive and conjecture about aliens all the time and they're actually out there, uh, but they just don't want to
0: talk to us. So of all of the stories that we've that we've looked at so far, you know, we we began with the Sentinel where we were wondering, well, what are the aliens going to be thinking or what is their what is their motive when they find us? So the implication in the Sentinel is that they're going to come along and whatever their motives, they were waiting for us to become relevant and then they're going to come back and check on us again. And in this story, they the aliens are here and first person deem us unworthy (laughs) There is no merit here, so we're just going to keep on moving. So it's funny, we are, we are not ants, we are not food, we just don't rate as worthy of any further contact from them in this particular story.
1: Hmm, That's actually probably a good segue into our next story where humans are very relevant to the aliens.
0: That's right, and where their composition as meat becomes something that is, well, worthy of speculation. So the other story then, Damon Knight's uh, classic sci-fi story, To Serve Man, again, written in 1950, eventually becomes a Twilight Zone episode.
1: Which is probably how most people know about it.
0: This story posits or poses aliens, the Kanimit, have come to Earth, and they've sent their emissaries. And the, the story actually opens where three of them are at the our united nations in assembly and they're being interviewed and the main characters the two characters that drive all of the action that drive all of the observation are actually un translators who have learned enough of the language the spoken language at least of the kanamit that they are translating for human ambassadors to the un
1: it's kind of funny the un is always like much more powerful in like 1940s and 50s and 60s stories than, than in well, later it was months. a
0: relatively new thing back then and of course you know we get we end the first world war the first world war the second world war where do we go from there well the next enemy's got to be interstellar right
1: and of course you know we're on our way to being a united planet at that point in time and <laughs> it didn't work out so well but that's
0: neither here nor there Well, see so these uh the basic events the Kanemit bring their first gift to us is is inexpensive, easily manufactured power that's basically an endless supply of power. They come back and they offer up additional gifts. So specifically, they have a device that makes any arable land well basically up to doubles its output for food, and then their third gift that they come back with is a device that makes it so that explosives cannot detonate within the zone of coverage of this device. So they're giving us energy, food, and no more war. No more war. Along the way, they submit to a polygraph test, and the American, or, well, the American, the actually French scientists, but the human scientists is where I was going with that, are all convinced that they have adapted the device so that they can judge the, the truth or, or not, as the case may be, of, of the aliens as they are speaking, and they are convinced that they have it right, and that the aliens, that their, their motives are altruistic.
1: Yeah, even though they don't really quite do a very good job of interrogating the aliens, they ask them, you know, three or four questions, the aliens answer, and everyone just walks away and agrees, yep, they're, they're all good, which probably isn't real realistic. But There's a little bit of skepticism,
0: but not enough not enough pushback to really, you know, be of, of merit or of note. However, one of the two translators, a gentleman by the name of Grigori, he continues to be somewhat skeptical. And so, as a story, the story, the, the opening half of it is all one moment, and then the second half of it is several months worth of time that travels relatively quickly or that passes relatively quickly. So, the... The Earth begins to implement these gifts, and there's no more famine, there's no more war, there's no more unemployment. They're working, the the candidate scientists are working with human scientists to solve things like cancer and heart disease. So the world is becoming a much- Yeah, make us
1: taller and stronger and healthier and all sorts of, on the surface, great ideas.
0: And so somewhere along the line, Grigori manages to steal a book from the visitors and it takes them a long time to begin to decipher that the title of it is to serve man. And so the two original translators, they're working at it. They're working at it. They're working at it. And, um, the, the first one, the one who isn't skeptical goes off on vacation to Canada for a couple of weeks. I thought that was a funny little detail And he comes back and Grigori shows up and Grigori's looking all haggard. He's looking like he hasn't slept in a couple of weeks. He's got the book clutched under his arm and he's like, what's up? You look terrible. What's going on? And as they, as they huddle up and he's talking, he says, well, I've translated the opening paragraph and it's not good. It's a cookbook. Dun, dun, dun. And there's your Damon Knight twist. And that's the kind of ending that he is known for.
1: Yeah, and he makes reference to the point that apparently all these Kenemit people on the, on the planet are walking around with a copy of this thing in their back pocket. So everyone kind of knows it's there, but they say, oh, to serve man. Yeah, they're, they're serving humanity. They're bringing us peace. They're bringing us food. They're bringing us all these great things. And again, no one really questions the motives as long as the money's flowing in.
0: And it's really, in actuality, then, the, the the equivalent of any of us walking through a state fair and checking out the walking steaks while they're still walking around. We've got our cookbooks. How are we going to prepare our steaks? How are we going to prepare our roasts? Checking out the goods. You know, maybe picking out our selections. Because that's one of the other details is that they begin gathering human emissaries to go on. It's, the, it's framed as a 10-year exchange program where you're going to go back to their home world for 10 years. Of course, 10 years long enough to be forgotten and for it, you know, to, for them to be able to get a lot of people going their way.
1: Well, they're turning the whole rest of the planet into a big farm.
0: That's right. So no more war. So the, the product isn't killing itself. It isn't killing each other. Getting really nice and healthy and fattened up, you know, just like we do to free range chickens.
1: Yeah, so the the humor in this story obviously comes with this little twist at the end. And, you know, I, I assume it's meant to be humorous and not kind of, you know, grim. <laughs> at least that's right. the spirit. I'm taking it in. It's like, oh, yeah, it's a cookbook. Uh-huh. We, we we get the twist.
0: Well, and that's it. Is it. Damon Knight is known as one of those authors who will take on some big ideas, but he tends to have something, you know, a, a bit of a light take on things, or, or it ends in such a way that well yeah it's the twist ending you know one of his other twilight zone episodes is the one where burgess meredith plays the 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 weasley old man who finds out that he's the last person on earth and he loves to read and he's walking up the steps to the library thinking he's the last right, person that on one earth that and one. yeah and he's he's set for life and he drops his glasses on the steps and they break so, yeah, that's yep. another Damon Knight ending. You know, that's that's yep. the kind of storyline that we're talking about here.
1: Well, I mean, even in general, right? This this story was, you said, 1950, I think? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, humor in general in science fiction, at least in the, the early part of science fiction, it was pretty, you know, I guess, crude or very contrived. A lot of it was sort of... You know, a whole carefully con- cra- you know, crafted story to make a pun or a joke or something like that. You know. So the stories weren't, you know, they were humorous, but they were kind of like one shot deals. It wasn't, you know, humor in science fiction has really not been a thing. Well, I guess it's been a thing much more in the last, you know, Thirty, forty years than it was in the early days of science fiction.
0: It's evolved beyond its origins as something that feels more like a stand up comedy routine with a good punchline.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: And so yeah, you've you've got a number of people. I mean Douglas Adams is probably one of the first people that comes to mind as writing stories that are consistently comedic, you know, where there yeah, there's are. There's a comedic lot of stories elements. where
1: there's exactly Exactly. There's some parts of the story that are are amusing, but they generally kind of serve to push the main plot along.
0: Right. and And so Adams is one of those that uses comedy to get people to look at things that are not comedic instead of looking at things that are not comedic and slipping in an occasional joke.
1: Yeah. I mean, for... You know, humor in science fiction seems much more prevalent when you look at movies and, and TV shows than it does in actual science fiction literature. Right. I mean, you can I mean, think you've of all sorts of shows,
0: like Mork and Mindy.
1: Yeah, exactly. Spaceballs, which Quark. made fun of everything. Uh, what was that show that was uh, the the Star Trek Galaxy Quest?
0: Oh yeah, Galaxy Quest, yeah. poking fun at at Star Trek and Star yeah. Trek fans.
1: Exactly. It, it's just, you know, that, that list goes on and on. But the, the original shows and, and you know the movies in the 40s and 50s and 60s, none, none of that was humorous for science fiction. They might have been kind of horror based, like the, you know, like the story we discussed last. But right. certainly nothing I can think of that would even, you know, we might look at them now and be amused by them, but they weren't intended to be humorous when they came out.
0: No, and in fact I began digging around to try to see, you know, is is this <laughs> is this a thought worth thinking that that sci fi doesn't entertain humor quite as often. And although there are lists that are out there of of books and short stories that are comedic in some degree, it seems like there really isn't that much out there and there certainly aren't a lot of authors who define their writing as primarily comedic who also choose to do science fiction.
1: And I don't know if that's because science itself is just not considered a very vibrant field for humorous anecdotes. I mean, a lot of times if there's, humor in science, you got to kind of be on the inside and know the joke when the two chemists are having a discussion or the physicists are, are having a discussion. So you know what all the terminology means and, and why it's really funny.
0: Right. And so if you're going to do something that has more mainstream appeal to it, it's hard to have an insider joke and, and, well, and to have it be well received and widely received.
1: So maybe you know, if you look at it from that perspective, it makes sense. there's just not a lot of humor in science fiction, so it's but yeah, for, you know, just looking at it objectively, I'd looked at my library of stuff before doing the show, and I was thinking, yeah, there's there's just not very much at all there that I would consider humorous.
0: and so it makes me think I would like to see more stuff that is is humorous. I'm not I'm, I'm not sure like trying to imagine what would I write if I were going to try to do something that was a humorous take. And I, I certainly attempt to write from time to time where characters express a lot of, especially sarcasm um, or gallows humor kind of stuff. But I wouldn't define a lot of even the stuff that I've attempted to write as outright comedic. It would be a challenge.
1: I think it's a lot harder than people would think.
0: Yeah, well, and it it, it goes along with acting. Comedic actors are almost always those that make the transition from pure comedy into a mix of of genres, including drama. I mean, Robin Williams, for example, comes to mind. When he was first beginning to do those kinds of things, people were amazed. Oh my gosh, this guy can really act. And you think about how complex of, a, of an action it is to embody a comedic character and to be able to do those kinds of things... You're really subsuming your own personality into that character a lot more than you might with some other kinds of acting or some other some other genres of acting, so it shouldn't come as a surprise, and yet it did. And I suppose that that same kind of concept travels into written word. You know, it, it's it's not an easy thing to sustain a comedic flow in written word.
1: Yeah, and even thinking about it as a reader, it's probably really hard to. To keep reading something that's obviously intended to be a joke, but after a while you're like, "Am I still like just getting a joke?" Now, of course, you look at you know the the one defining uh, piece of literature, which as we discussed before, is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and it's humorous all the way through, but it's also interesting because he uses different types of humor throughout. You know, all of the different stories that he tells and all the different characters and all the different scenes that are set up. So it doesn't read like one long joke. It's three or four or five. How many books are there? Uh, At least four.
0: There's quite a few now. Well, there's an original trilogy. And then he continued to add books to it after that.
1: Yeah, but it's sort of like you could read those books and and constantly find something new or a new twist on something that you hadn't heard of before. So even though it's written as humorous uh, from a humorous standpoint, it's still very approachable and very interesting.
0: And someone who crosses over into sci-fi but is, is is more recognized as a as a fantasy literature author, Terry Pratchett is another one of those that has managed to continuously uh, or you know, he's he's managed to sustain that comedic voice through all of his writing and whether he's doing science fiction or fantasy, whether it's short fiction or long fiction, he's always got that, that inherent, um, you know, that, that sarcastic view, that off kilter perspective on the world that he's playing with there. And it, it, it really is an accomplishment. And, and I, you know, I, I admit that I'm one who I love dark fiction I love the stuff that's in between. I love stuff that's, that's really fast paced, but every once in a while, I, I really appreciate the ability to turn to somebody like Adams or Pratchett and, and to escape from some of that, the heavier, darker stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, getting back to, uh, you know, the, to serve man, uh, that we were, I guess, discussing before we went off on yet another one of our long rambling tangents. Uh, you know what 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 do we think about when we think about some of the elements in these stories that, you know, we can approach from a more sort of you know philosophical concept, or you know, what what do we think that that Damon Knight's trying to tell us when he wrote this story? Is it just like how gullible people are, or how how unwilling we are to look deeper when there's something good coming our way? What
0: I think there's a parallel to Bisson's story in that the alien life in in they're made out of meat meets us, no pun intended. Explores a relationship. You know they interact with us, they probe us, and they find us lacking. They have no use for us because they have no use for meat. The aliens in to serve man, they come along, they study us, they make a connection, they recognize that we are made out and of they meat. Like and they like Decide, hey. We like meat. <laughs> so they set up a farm, like you said before, you know, they, they do find purpose in us, but the purpose has nothing to do with our intelligence, with our humanity per se, with our capacity for anything beyond being meat.
1: Yep. They like us because we're made out of That's meat. That's
0: right. So there, there are definite parallels here. it. Both of them are completely dismissive to humankind in terms of our own self-centered arrogance.
1: Self-importance? Yes.
0: We don't rate the way that we think we rate. We are food. Or not even good enough to eat. (laughs) Because the aliens and they're made out of meat are more like the people who would come along and see something on the plate and go oh, I'm not going to eat that. Ugh!
1: What's that? It's like, why'd you serve me this pile of rocks for dinner?
0: So that that's one of the consistent things here is that humans are found wanting in, in, in both. You know, like we, we are not worthy of being anything other than either dismissed or eaten in these two stories.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times, you know, we see, when we see these disconnects between what aliens think of humans, it's, Usually some kind of gap in, you know, communications or something like that. I'm, I'm thinking of like Ender's Game where they don't, since they're like a hive mind, they can't figure out what humanity's doing, decide we're not intelligent because we're not like them, proceed to start a war, and you know, we, all, we all kind of know how that one ends. Uh, I think there's probably a few other shows where, or not shows, but stories where the the aliens just they they look at us and just go, eh, what? I don't see anything there, you know? <laughs> and then the whole story is about us, you know, proving ourselves to them. But of course, usually this comes through what? War, you know? Right. That That's where, that's how we apparently resolve all these species conflicts when one side or the other can't communicate or doesn't want to for some reason.
0: Well, and you look at the, the alien races in something like Star Trek, that uh, like the the Klingon Empire or the Romulans for example that that we engage in conflict with or you look at Independence Day or a film you know films like those where the aliens find us worthy at least of fighting and we're capable of fighting back even if it's not even if the odds are against us as it is as is the case in something like Independence Day but that good old human ingenuity that we've talked about before overcomes in the end there's nothing like that here there's there's no opportunity to overcome anything because in the case of they're made out of meat we don't even know that they're here and in the case of to serve man we've been duped we think that oh hey free stuff it's a it's a free power cell i'm gonna hook it up to my house oh great my crops are doing really well i'm feeling so you know healthy and strong and fat
1: Right. yeah, I, I think it's interesting inside that story uh, where the one guy says, you know no one ever asked why. They, they said what they're doing, but and it all sounded really good, but nobody ever really asked why. I mean they sort of did and the aliens gave this you know sort of platitude of, of, yeah, we want you to be happy. We want you to be fat and healthy. Well, I don't know if those two things go together. <laughs> we want you to be healthy. We want you to be strong. And, of course, that was all true. But then you have to say, well, you know, it's like when you have the kids and they keep going, why, 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 why? why? It's like, okay, well, why do they want us to be happy? Why do they want us to be healthy? And those questions never got asked as soon as, you know, the gravy train was flowing.
0: That's right. And I think that there's something to that. How often do people, you know, we trade something? Here's the thing: give me access to your data, give me access to your life, give me access to whatever it is. You know, we, we tend not to question free. I and even though this was written, what goodness, 70 years ago, I think that yeah, there's some insight haven't there. have changed a whole lot since. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you know, we just have different I mean, different. You know, free things that get offered to us. And it isn't the aliens. Well, unless Zuckerberg is from another planet, could be. Well, I
1: mean, you've got people that send you, I don't know if you ever had it, but sometimes free Amazon shipments will show up on your doorstep with free things inside. And, you know, believe it or not, that's not really a benefit to you because apparently there's this thing where people will send out free packages and then use you as a reference or saying you're a customer and write glowing reviews for themselves on Amazon. So if you get free stuff, you might want to question it.
0: Confirmed purchase. That doesn't necessarily mean that any money actually changed hands.
1: It's amazing what we can come up with as retailers.
0: That's right. So these stories are not the longest, not the most complex. There really aren't elements that are anachronistic in the stories that call attention to themselves as, well, you know, they're both set as they are. One has very little context in they're their made out of meat. And the other one is set in the 1950s. It's not a futuristic story. It's a contemporary story with an alien race coming into it. So you can't really- yeah.
1: They're made out of meat could have been done in the 1600s, you right. know, <laughs> could have been done 500 years from now. It could have been done in 1950.
0: There really isn't a lot that sets these apart from the times that they are in, or rather that would make us look at them and find them in any way, shape or form lacking for the times that they are set within.
1: Now, I I think these two, both of these stories are, are written specifically to make you take a look at humanity and, and our supposed special place in the universe and realize that's really not the case. Because as soon as you shift your perspective to some other race with completely different motives, biology, or, you know, whatever standpoint you want to look at it from, all of a sudden we're just, you know, one more race of people or a race of something that may or may not have any value to them at all. So we're only important to ourselves.
0: And are we ever going to change? Well, that's to be determined. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for our comedic double feature. We hope that you come back for our next episode where we talk about Clifford Symex' story about pantropy that is called Desertion. On behalf of Dan Cam, this is Bill Williamson saying, take it easy.